<laughs> I, I, yeah, wow. Let's have them run the place. It was um, wonderful to see what God is doing. And friends, I just want to encourage you too. Um, you know, we've been talking the last couple of months about the deficit. Um, uh, just to let you know, as of a week or so ago, we were, we were $20,000 behind on our annual budget, which if you've been keeping tuned in, is an extraordinary place to be at this stage of the year. Isn't that right? So we have eaten into the deficit massively. Um, praise God for what he's doing amongst each of you. I just, I, I find it such a joy to be with you in the fellowship of God's people because of his work in your lives. And so, now 20 grand's still behind and we want to finish that uh, on budget by the end of the year, but uh, under God, uh, we trust that he will through you and your work. So keep pressing, really encouraging. Uh, other thing to say is that uh, Hebrews chapter 6, um, last week, uh, we were very helpfully engaged with that, but it's raised lots of questions for people, as we, it has each time we've done this over the years. And so uh, Graham and I have had a chat, and we've decided that we'll run a kind of a, an informal night this week on Thursday night, 7.30, in the hall up at the top there. Um, I, I was keen for Graham to be there, but he won't. He's running away. Um, but uh, no, he's, uh, he's taking a well-earned break, and so it'll just be me, but it'll be unplugged. We, it'll, it'll be an informal discussion together around the Scriptures. We'll, we'll dig a bit deeper. We'll look at the history of Christian thought on Hebrews chapter 6, uh, the controversies surround that, and uh, wrestle with what, the God, what God has to say in the Word about it, and uh, engage with Reformed theology and how that fits into it all. So it'll be an important and helpful time. But come along, so you don't have to be there. I mean, we've, there's lots happening. Um, but if you are keen to dig a bit further, then come along Thursday night, 7.30 in the hall. Uh, it, um, it'll, it'll just be me. So uh, we'll, we'll talk together and uh, there'll be a few of, there'll only be a few of you, so we'll have a, a good relaxed time together. How about I pray? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for the evidence of your hand at work amongst us. And Lord, we are, we are humbled that you, the holy God of the universe, should choose to do what you do amongst us. And we thank you so much. We pray for our children that you would continue to grow them and transform and change them. We thank you for the faithfulness of so many who have led and worked in that area for so long. Pray for many more who would give themselves to it. Pray for this weekend where 160 of our young adults are away together to study the Bible and pray together. We uh, pray that that would be a huge blessing uh, for them, for us, for the next generation, that you would raise up young men and women amongst us to send out, to go out into the mission field, uh, to grow the work of the gospel across this planet. We pray now that as we dig into your word, please that you would give us hearts and minds that are focused, that are clear, that you would help us see the treasures that you have for us there. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to give you a gift. I think God wants to give you a gift this morning. Uh, a great gift, a wonderful gift, a gift that's like gold, better than gold. It's like this uh, precious jewel that he has for us this morning. Uh, it's in the passage that was read, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 6, the, next, the last part of Hebrews chapter 6. It is a nugget of gold that's in there from verse 13 to 20. You've got to dig for it, though. We need to dig for it. It's not... As you read through it, I've just noticed as people have engaged with it over the years that it's kind of easy to slide past it and miss it. But it's a gift we need, and I want to suggest what it is just in anticipation. It's the gift of security. It's the gift of being secured. 
of having security, of having a life that's grounded and deep and strong and stable. That's a gift that we were made to enjoy. God made us to know security as people, to be secure, not insecure, but stable, firm, solid, not fearful. We all want that life. We want it for our kids. If you're here and you're, you're young, you want it for yourself. You don't want to grow up that child, that adult, that young adult who everywhere they go, they're fearful and anxious and unstable. You want, your parents are concerned about this with kids, aren't you? I mean, we, we, mums, dads read lots of books and talk a lot. How do I raise my kids so that they're stable, secure, firm, non-anxious children? That's what we want. We want it for ourselves so that when we walk into groups of people, we don't have this. We're good at hiding our insecurities so that on the outside, all of us look pretty good. But you scratch every one of us and you'll find there's all kinds of fears and anxieties and insecurities and instabilities. We were made to be different to that. We've been searching for it. And the gift today is that the answer to that is here. It's in this passage. Hebrews chapter 6. But I want to suggest to you, I don't think it's obvious. It's easy to pass over and miss it. The passage itself is somewhat complex. It's saying a number of things, some things that we won't be able to deal with in detail today, we'll deal with next week, um, particularly the thing of Melchizedek. Did you hear about Melchizedek? Who is that man? What, what has he got to do with anything? Where does he come from? Well, we're not going to dig into it much today. Next week, we'll come back to Melchizedek, and it's important. But what we see here in this part of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 6, is a fundamental truth of the Christian faith that is made for our security and our stability and our life as humans, so that from that foundation, we can grow and flourish. It's a beautiful gift. So let's start the digging. There's the promise of where we're going. Let me try and get us there. Uh, Let's see if we can rush through it. There's a lot to get through. Let's start digging by noticing the context. Have a look there in verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realised. We don't want anyone to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what is promised. Now, notice that. We want you to be diligent to the very end, don't become lazy, Uh, and we want you to inherit that which the patient people inherit, the faith and patient people. Now, when you say to someone about being patient, what does it say about the context they're in? Just the language of calling someone to be patient says something, doesn't it? Uh, And this is worth just noting this on the way through. This is not the main point, but it's a piece of it. When you say to someone, be patient, um, you, you don't... You don't say that to someone who's swanning around a tropical island with beautiful sunshine and the waves perfect and a drink and a meal. You don't say to them to be patient. What kind of context do you say to someone to be patient in? What's the context? Going through suffering or trials. You you, you say to someone to be patient when they're six months out from the desert island holiday. They haven't got it yet. They're in the rain. They've got La Nina or something happening to them and it's a mess and it's cold and it's meant to be summer and you say, be patient. You see, you say be patient when it's not delivering. When it's, these people are told to be patient. Why are they being told to be patient? Very important to hear. They're Christians, Jewish Christians, and they're being told to be patient because the Christian faith isn't delivering yet. 
The Christian faith isn't giving them health and wealth and prosperity. It's not making their life better. It's tough. You tell someone to be patient when it's not easy. And let me just bang on this for a moment longer. It's critical to get this. If, if you're young and you're, you're amongst you, year five and six and so on, getting the expectations for Christianity is deep, deeply important. What, what are the right expectations for being a Christian? Um, if you come to Christ and become a Christian, life changes profoundly. You'll get, I'll talk to you about the stability and the peace that comes. You get every spiritual blessing in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1. But you have all of that in the midst of suffering. Becoming a Christian will not make your life easier. It, the first five to seven years of my Christian life were hard, hard. I, I wasn't sure I could make it because my, my previous life was far more fun. That's, my friends there were much more entertaining and enjoyable than my church friends. And I, I just didn't think I could do it. Be patient. It tells you the expectations of the Christian life. It's not easy to be a Christian. These people were struggling and so the author says to them, be patient. Critical to grasp this. If you buy into the idea that the Christian life means life now will be awesome, it'll destroy you. It, you'll be disillusioned or distort Christianity. Be patient tells you what the nature of the Christian life is. Now, that's not saying you don't get nothing. I mean, you, every spiritual blessing, you get security and so on. But be patient. That's the context. Hang in there. Then he gives, now we come to our passage, verse 13. He gives an example of someone who exemplifies patience in the midst of not being delivered. Not, not being delivered literally, actually. Not having the baby delivered. Right? It's, it's Abraham. Look at verse 14, 13, 14. When God made his promise to Abraham, back in the Old Testament book of Genesis, since there was no one greater of him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Now, this is a quote from Genesis chapter 22. God promised this man, Abram, whose name means father, actually, dad. And Abraham means big daddy, right? It means great dad. Um, and so this man whose name is dad is promised lots of kids the problem was when he had the promise first given to him he had no kids and he was 75 and his wife was 65 now how many 65 years are sitting amongst us at the moment who want, hands up if you want kids right now <laughs> right well it, it i mean how many 75 year old men want to go back there these guys have been barren they've not had kids but they had a promise from god they had to wait 25 more years to get that promise fulfilled, at least one child. Wow, he's in a Zimmer frame, <laughs> walking around trying to teach this kid how to walk. They're very old, right? But it did happen. It did happen. Verse 15, after waiting patiently, you see the word patiently? They didn't get it. They went a long time without getting what was promised, but they did then get it. And we know from the rest of the book of the Old Testament that God's promise came through in spades. Thousands and now millions, children of Abraham. The preacher's point at this stage is a simple one. There will be years without you getting what is promised by God. There'll be years where you don't enjoy the promises that have been made for you. You don't get them. That's the simple point. But it will come. But it will come. 
So be patient. Wait, trust, don't give up. Now, that's a simple and profound point. Christians, imitate Abraham. Don't read the circumstances of your life as evidence that the Christian faith's not working. Now, you'll think that if you think the Christian life's meant to make your life better and wonderful and the best life you can ever have. And if you think that's what the Christian life's meant to give you and you're finding it not that, you'll go, it's not working. No, 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 no. That's exactly how the Christian life is. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. But who hopes for what he already has, says Paul in Romans. Don't give up. God has promised he will deliver, just not right now. Now, there's the simple point, but there's far more going on here. And here's where we dig a bit deeper. Why does the author choose Abraham to make this illustration? Well, there's a few reasons. He's a very good example of someone who was promised something and had to wait a long time to have it come. He's just a good example. But he's also the father of all those who believe, who are believers. There's a lot going on here with the example. But there's far more. There's another reason why he chooses Abraham. And it's complex. So stick with me on this, all right? We're gonna, we're gonna, why does he choose Abraham as his example? This next piece gives us the insight into the key to security. Why choose Abraham? Because Genesis chapter 22 and the promise to Abraham is the first time God makes a promise and swears an oath when he does it. Now, when he swears an oath in Genesis chapter 22, I don't mean a profanity. He's not swearing. He's swearing an oath. He says in 22 verse 16, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, I will surely bless you and make you your descendants as numerous as the stars. I swear by myself. He declares an oath. Now, the promise comes with an oath, verse 13, where God swears by himself. Now, he can't swear by uh, anything else because when you make an oath now you know what an oath is we do it in the law courts I think we still I've not been to a law court for a long time but you still do it in the law courts don't you where's our prosecutors you put a hand on a bible we want to make sure you're going to tell us the truth so we make you swear an oath not swear but swear an oath hand on the bible you say I promise to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help me God so help me God. And, and what we, you put your hand on the Bible, something greater than you that represents God amongst us, and you swear by something greater to say, you know, effectively to say, if I'm not telling the truth, let me be struck down. That's the kind of thing you're saying. You say you swear by something greater. Now, he says in verse 16, people swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. The point of an oath is it makes even more sure the promises that you're making. Now, that's why, have you ever wondered why weddings are meant to be public? You, you know, the reason we actually bring a man and a woman up and we set a whole crowd in front of them and don't just do it with no one is because it makes your promises more sure if you do them publicly so that we see you make the promise. And, and what's being said here is if you want to make sure that someone's promise is real and, and is going to be delivered, make them swear an oath, you see. Now, that's the point being made here. Um, now, why is, he, why is he... Abraham is the first time God promises with an oath. Now, why does he choose that? Stick with me here. Because he's been talking about Melchizedek. You're going, oh, what's that? Hang on a moment, I'll explain it. He's been talking about Melchizedek. 
chapter 4, verse 14, he begins to talk about Jesus, a high priest, the need for a high priest, a need for a priest who's better than the old Levitical priests who died and were sinners and were powerless. We need a high priest who's able to really connect up with God, who doesn't have his own sin. This is the point of chapter 4 and 5, doesn't have his own sin. And he's not mortal. He's eternal. He doesn't die so that he's there forever to perform the role of priest. That's the kind of priest we need to bring us to a holy God. So he's been talking about priests. And in verse 6 of chapter 5, he, talks, he then quotes Psalm 110, which talks about Melchizedek and the need for a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? We'll come back to him next week. But then he, he hits again verse 10 of chapter 5, Jesus being designated by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Being in the order of Melchizedek is a big deal. Just in brief, Melchizedek is um, evidence that there's a priest greater than the Jewish priests. He comes and goes. He's eternal. There's something profound about him. The king of Salem. And, And Psalm 110 says... God says there's going to be a priest coming who will be in the order of that Melchizedek priest, the greatest priest, the best priest you could ever have, the one we really need, the one who will secure for us forgiveness with the Holy God, unlike human priests who can't pull that off. We need this one in the order of Melchizedek. It's Psalm 110 that tells us this. And the author of Hebrews has been talking about Psalm 110. Then he has this aside, which we looked at last week and we're looking at it again this week. But he finishes that aside, verse 20, talking about Melchizedek and Jesus as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And chapter 7, he hits Melchizedek big time. That's why we'll come back to him next week. It's all about Melchizedek. Now, I know you will... Why next week? Right, we'll hear more about it. But it matters. It matters that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, his kind of priesthood, Because that's the only kind of priesthood that can work. And it's the kind that secures for us a a place with God in the inner sanctuary. Really matters next week, right? Now, if it really matters, how do we know that Jesus is that priest? Well, here's we now come close to the point. If you go back to Psalm 110 and you look at the statement about a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, you'll find this extraordinary thing where God says, um, I swear, I declare on oath that you'll be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. I declare on oath that you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We need this priest in the order of Melchizedek and God promises with an oath. He swears and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He swears an oath like he did to Abraham. And from verse 16 on, that's where the point is. People swear by someone greater themselves, but God wanting to, listen to this, but God wanting to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, us, 
confirmed it with an oath. He didn't just make a promise about Jesus being a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He made that promise with an oath. I swear I'm going to do it. Right? Verse 18. God did this for a reason. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Now, what are the two unchangeable things which make it impossible for God to lie? Well, they're back in verse 17. What are the two unchangeable things that make it impossible for God to lie? The unchanging nature of his purpose and the oath. The unchanging nature of his purpose. God is invincible. He is sovereign. He rules the heavens and the earth. He does as he pleases. He fulfills all his purposes. If he sets his heart and mind to do something, it's invincible. He can't be stopped. His unchangeable purpose, fixed. And his oath. If he makes a promise and swears by himself to fulfil it, you know he's going to keep it. And so by those two unchangeable things, God's promise is secured so that we may be greatly encouraged that it will happen, just as he promised. Now, what do we do with all of this? There's a detail, which is that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and that's a great hope that secures a believer in the inner sanctuary. It gives us an anchor. We'll come to that next week. But the core idea, the reason we can be sure that Jesus is that one, the reason we can be sure that there is a priest in the order of Melchizedek who achieves what the old priesthood couldn't, and who secures us in the inner sanctuary, the reason we can be sure that that is true is that God made an oath. He swore that it would be true. And he couldn't swear on anything else. He swore on his own nature. He said, I, I, I swear to myself, may I be who I am. I am who I am. I'm swearing against myself. This cannot be changed. God made a promise, so that by two unchangeable things it's secured. Now, do you see, are you seeing, here's the key to your stability. Here's the gift of God for you this morning, that you might be greatly encouraged and secured as a human in this world. It's the secret to a rock-solid life. Now, what is that key? What is the key that secures our life? Think. Don't answer. Don't say anything. It's risky now, isn't it? But j j I want you to engage. After all you've heard, what is the, actually the thing that secures us and gives us stability and ensures that we can live non-anxious lives? What is the thing that stabilizes us, that's a rock for us to build our lives on? What is that thing? It's there in the passage. We've just gone through it. And I don't think it's what we tend to think it is. Have you thought about it? Let me tell you what it is. The thing you can build your life on 
is the promise of God. Oh. Oh. You know, 2,000 years ago, if I'd said that, as he said it to his original audience, they would have gone, yes, the promise of God about Jesus, the priest forever in the Melchizedek, that nails it for me. You mean God swore that he would be that one? I'm now settled. I'll be patient. I'll stick with it even though it's tough. But today, when I offer that the anchor, the rock you can build your life on is the promises of God, I think many of us go, really? Yeah? Now why? Why are we not, why doesn't it gain traction much amongst us emotionally? Here's my suggestion, I'm going to invite your thoughts in a second. I, I suggest the reason it doesn't gain, gain much traction for us is that over the last 200, 300 years, long period of time, We've been trained by our elites and our philosophers and our culture to think of God as just an idea, an invisible friend in the sky who's maybe real, maybe not real, just an idea. And, and if God is like that for us, he's just an idea in the sky, then to hear that he's the key to your stability, you go, well, that's like building my house on the air. That doesn't feel very solid. The imaginary friend in the sky doesn't feel like something I can build my life on particularly. It doesn't give me much security. Isn't that a sense of what happens in our culture? So let's press into this. Where, where does our culture think you can go to build security? You know, if, if you want to be in our world and live a life of security and stability, what things might you rely on to give you that stability? Let's give us your thoughts. This is not what the Christian might say. This is what a, your friends might say, or you might say. If you, what, what, what might you say you build your life on if uh, you're not a Christian person? Wealth, finances. Absolutely. Give us some other list, and I'll go through them in a second. Real estate, property. Relationships. Career, power, comforts, reputation, babies. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think you build your security on you as a mother, you as a father of this. Yeah, 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 that's who I am, for sure. Retirement, yep. Let me run through. I've got, I've got some more that you've not mentioned. I'll give you some things that I think people build their lives on and pull them apart. Ready for this? I think people, how do I build my life rock solid? I build it on science. I build it on matter, the, the earth, the planet. I build it on relationships. I build it on ideas. I build it on values. I build it on health, I build it on career, I build it on money, finances and so on. Let me take you through each of these. Think about each of these. And, and so if they're the ones you're building a life on science or the planet, the rock we're on or, or, uh, or relationships, if, you, if you, they're, they're tangible and you kind of go, I can, I can get security in those things. God, he's just an idea. I'm not, he doesn't do much for me at all. Well, let me take you through these. Matter, rocks, the planet... A moment's thought helps you notice that the planet we're on has no foundation. It's just a lump of rock with nothing. 
And even the surface of the planet is not solid, it's sitting on a molten core. It's moving and changing. So rock solid really just means solid for a period of time. You know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, scientists, philosophers would have said that matter was eternal. And so, you, you know, the rock solid thing matters lived, been forever, existed forever, 150 years ago. But now the Big Bang demonstrates that no, it hasn't, it, matter hasn't existed forever, it's come into being and therefore will go out of existence. So matter itself is not solid. The earth is not here forever. In fact, the sun will blow it up soon. Which therefore means if you are building your life on the things that you build here, they'll be gone. You'll be gone. There's nothing tangible that lasts on our earth. Let me give you some other ones. Science itself. People go, you know, I can't believe in God, but I can believe in science. Science is where, you know, the facts of science. Well, um, put aside all the twists and turns of how science and its thinking has changed. I've just given one example, how it keeps changing what it says is true over the centuries. Um, philosophically, it's based entirely on assumptions that are unproven. Did you know this? Science operates with an assumption that there is a reality that's external to the observer. That this out, outside of you is real. That's an assumption science makes but can't prove. It just operates with that assumption, an unproven one, which is the whole basis of the whole exercise. Mathematics is based on a series of assumptions that can't be proven. It's very, when you dig into it, it all, it's like a house of cards, it all disappears, science actually, and consistency, it's based on the idea that things happen consistently and you can assume, no, that's an assumption. Science isn't something to base your life on. What about relationships? I think one of the ones we do go to, you went to it, relationships. Build our lives, base our security on my parents, on my children, on my marriage, on my friends... I know your friends. <laughs> I know your marriage partner. I, like, few things. Have they ever let you down? Yes. Will they do it again? Yes. Uh, will they live forever? No. They, if you build your life on your partner, you will one day lose them and you will be lost. That's a very frail thing to build the foundation of your life on. If you build your life on your kids, you destroy your kids and you destroy yourself and they'll end up kids that you can't rely on anyway. And if they rely on you as parents, you'll be... You know, I'm in moving into that generation where, where both parents of my friends are now dying. Do, do you know what I mean? Like you move through all the stages. You start going to 18th birthdays, then you go to 21st birthdays, and then you go to retirement parties, and then you go to funerals of your friends, of their parents... When the first parent dies, it's very significant. But when the second parent dies, all your parents have gone <laughs> and your roots have gone. It's quite a moment, isn't it, those of you who have lived through it? My history has died. And if you've found your, founded your stability on your parents, it won't last. Your partner, your marriage won't last. They'll frail love ideas. Um, we, we let, I can at least rely on ideas, values of truth and love. These are things I can ground my life on. Really? 
If there is no God, what is truth? If there is no God, what is love? We're just an evolved species who has, for convenience sake, called this thing, which is physical attraction, love. It's not anything really if there is no God. Love, these things are unstable and shifting. You know, values, 30 years ago, 30 years ago, what we all thought was basic human decency, we've now been told and discovered, was embarrassing. The way you think about life 30 years ago, we all assumed was right. We now go, oh, I don't want, I hope no one realised I thought that back then. Well, here's the thing, if you're under 30, if you're a 15-year-old sitting with us today, or you're 12, 10, in 30 years' time, the things that you assume are true values, you'll be embarrassed that you believed in. Values and things shift as a culture constantly. As a key stability? No, there's nothing there. Finances, do we have to talk about it? The property market. As soon as someone starts reporting that it's going to crash, it'll crash. If you in the last six months have bought a house, I'm kind of sorry for you. Because if you'd waited another two years, you'd probably get it cheaper. You know, it's, property goes up and down. And your own career and so What appears in life in this world to be rock solid, when you think about it, when you get off your phone <laughs> and stop Googling and you know, actually think about things for a moment, what looks solid is not at all. There is nothing in this world that is solid to build your life on. So where can you find that solid ground? Only outside of our world. Only outside of our existence. Only in the unchanging nature of God, who made all things, who alone is eternal. Now I get it that, that this takes quite a step for most of us today to get past the way we've been brainwashed into thinking that he's just optional. But the evidence is powerful. God is invisible, but he has made himself visible in history that we might know that he's there and he is reliable and solid so that we might have encouragement. He has spoken and then acted, promised, and in history, done things. So that you, so it's clear, you know, Abraham at 75 is promised to have kids, and God waits until his wife is 90 to prove that when the child comes, it was God who did it, just as he promised, rock solid. You know, um, the history of Israel. In the Old Testament, God speaks, promises, then acts in history, and it's testable. Do you know, I've got some slides for us. Look at this, let's see if we can pull this off. Um, here, is a, here is a bit of stone that was discovered in 1878, I think I've got that right, in the 1800s. Now, before, the, before this stone was discovered, many uh, church people began to decide that the Old Testament was a myth and a legend, that Israel didn't exist. It was all made up. But over the last hundred or so years, we've discovered so many things. This stone, um, it's, uh, it, was, it, 
it talks about, it was discovered in, in 1890, actually, and it has a little statement on it. Israel uh, is laid waste, is written on that stone. And it dates back to 1230 BC. 1230 BC, Israel was laid waste, is written on that stone. Which tells you what? The Bible, when it talks about Israel, is talking about a real people who actually existed. Let me give you the next one. Um, th th this is a, a stone discovered some couple of decades earlier in the 1800s. Um, and it talks about three kings that are mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 3 in the 9th century BC, which confirms what we hadn't ever seen anywhere else except in the Bible, the mention of these three kings, that they're real, they actually existed. <laughs> As history's gone on, we keep seeing concrete, tangible evidence that the Bible is not just a myth or legend, it's, it's talking about real things. Now, the most compelling piece of this, of course, is Jesus. His death and then resurrection from the grave and the evidences. He said three times to his disciples that he would be crucified and then rise again. And he told them beforehand so that when he was raised to life, they would know it was God's hand who did it. God is invisible, but for our encouragement, he, he makes promises and then fulfills them in concrete, tangible, historical events that you can touch so that you can see him there. Why? Because heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never fail, says Jesus. Heaven and earth, as solid as they seem, are nothing. God is eternal. His words of promise are eternal. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Because it's the word of the God who created all things, who is himself the only solid thing in existence, who lasts forever. There is nothing solid like the eternal God who speaks. Anything you can see, touch, feel, it will disappear. The only thing that's solid is that which is outside of us, God himself. Now, what does all of this mean? That the key, the key, the key to our life, the key to our future, the key to our security as humans, as people, as Christians, as people who will die and stand before God, is Jesus. But beneath that is something more fundamental, the promise of God about Jesus. He has sworn an oath that his priesthood works, which therefore means you can take that to the bank, if banks were reliable. But, you know, you, you, that, that you can build your life on because God has sworn an oath. You know, let me think with you about this for a second. Jesus dies and rises to life again to conquer sin, Satan and death. But he is nothing to us unless... God's promise about Jesus is true. And that promise is, whoever looks to Jesus and puts their faith in Jesus and not their own works, whoever looks to Jesus and trusts him, who repents of their sins and puts their faith, whoever trusts Jesus says, God, I will forgive. Jesus' death and resurrection is nothing to us 
unless the promise of God is true, that if you look to Jesus, you'll be saved. Our whole life depends on that promise, do you see? If God cannot be relied on, if that promise cannot be trusted, Jesus is of no account to us. And so God swears an oath to encourage you by two unchangeable things, that his purposes can never fail. Heaven and earth can fall away, but his promises can never fail. And he swears an oath to make absolutely sure that those who have fled to him and taken hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged and have stability and certainty and confidence that sinner that I am when I stand before God because he promised that whoever looks to the Son will live, I can live. Now I'm driving this home because I want you to see very clearly Christianity is about God and trusting him. It's not a formula. It's, it's not a... Um, it's not some kind of uh, set of rules that you believe in. It's a person you trust. And when I stand before the holy God of the universe, I need to know that his promise is true. That he is the God who justifies the ungodly. My only hope is the promises of God. And that grounds everything. So, brothers and sisters, persevere. Be patient. You may lose everything. But God's promise is sure. That whoever looks to the Son, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, will be saved and will inherit eternity forever with God. It will not fail because God is invincible and he has confirmed it with an oath and you can trust him. So persevere. Press on. Do not let the struggles of the Christian life dissuade you. Stick at it. Year in, year out. Do not give up. Cling to Christ because of the promises of God who has declared on oath that it is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, please, that you might help us do exactly that, to know you for who you are, the God who is faithful, who promises, and who has gone so far to swear an oath to give us confidence that it's unchangeable, that you are the rock. Help us know you better. Help us find stability, therefore, and confidence and security that we can live our lives flourishing under the strong hand of the great rock we build our lives on you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.